want to read to you this morning on behalf of the mothers in the house. The study says, stay-at-home mom, worth nearly $117,000. You may be aware of this study. It's growing every year. If a stay-at-home mom could be compensated in dollars rather than personal satisfaction and unconditional love, she'd rake in a nifty sum of nearly $117,000 a year. A working mom who also juggles an outside job would get $68,405 for her monthly motherly duties. One stay-at-home mom said the six-figure salary sounds a little low. <laughs> so I went on the website and did a little cost-of-living adjustment for Miami, which is 38% higher. I came to a new total of $161,000. 190. How does that sound, mothers? Can you handle that? Uh, uh, well, the biggest driver of a mom's theoretical salary is the amount of overtime pay she'd receive for working more than 40 hours a week. The 18,000 moms surveyed about their typical week reported working 94.4 hours, meaning they're spending more than half their working hours on overtime. Moms, we fathers know the truth. You don't work overtime. You work all the time. And we do want to give you honor this morning. I do want to take some time here to honor you. It would be so appropriate to do that, not just because it's Mother's Day. We do want to acknowledge that. But because it's biblical, it is right to honor our mothers in fact, it is the fifth commandment. You could say it is the centerpiece of God's Ten Commandments. It's the first that deals with our love for our neighbor, for one another. It starts the most profound and intimate relationship of a children, a child, to their parents, to their mom. To honor is not just a duty, it is a delight. The word here means to prize highly. It has nuances of affection and care. Well, I this morning want to honor, I want to delight, I want to glory in one mom who couldn't be here this morning, but I believe does, and in her seasons of motherhood, has represented many, many godly moms this morning. She's currently in Seattle, Washington, visiting my aunt, and she's my mom. And I know that she will be listening later on today. I'm always guaranteed of one listener. And one person to read my blog every week. And that is my mom. And I am thankful for her. Yes. So I guess you could say I'd like to give a verbal rose to my mom this morning. He'll be listening. I want to read a part of a tribute that I wrote to my mom 13 years ago when Cindy and I got married. I've updated it with an additional paragraph. I'm not going to give you all the tribute. I'm not going to last. I couldn't give you a full tribute without losing it this morning. But I'm going to do my best to honor my mom. She is so worthy of honor. This is called a tribute to my mom. You reared me. Mom, you packed my school lunches with surprise desserts. You even spread peanut butter with your finger when we had no utensils. The smell of waffles topped with strawberries and Cool Whip awakened my senses on those sleepy Saturday mornings. The anticipation of summer brought blackberry delight. I picked the berries in our backyard, and you baked them in those flaky crust pies. My sweet tooth always hoped there was a little crust left over to sprinkle with sugar and cinnamon spice. I guess it is true. Food is a way to a man's or a little boy's heart. You clothed me when we had so little. God provided, and you trusted. With the celebration and pageantry of Easter came a new clothes outfit. With dignity and honor, I put on my new matching blue and white shoes. If God clothes the lilies of the field, how much more will he clothe those who trust in him? Mom, you disciplined me. My mouth was washed with soap and my bottom spanked with lumber. I knew what disobedience was and its ramifications. 
even if I did laugh when your homemade spanking tool would break over my hardened bottom. It is true. It is sad. You always made it a point to say you loved me when you were mad at me or I let you down. I knew the words were true, even as I cried. Mom, you were a friend to me. Before I had dad, I was a single mom for the first 10 years. You tossed baseballs in the park so I could improve my swing. We shared many Baskin and Robin ice cream cones. You liked Jamocha almond fudge. I liked black licorice ice cream, just so I could make a mess and wear a black mustache. <laughs> we have never grown tired of popcorn, ice cream, Rice Krispie cookies. You're seeing the food theme here. I'm seeing it here. Wow. I remember watching fireworks over Green Lake from our porch balcony every 4th of July. We munched on our traditional M&Ms and raisins. I look forward to it every year. Mom, you let me go. When I married Cindy, you let me leave and cleave to the bride of my dreams. You did not compete for my attention nor demand my love. You've been like a sweet fragrance of a lahua flower, our favorite Hawaiian flower, planted in a gentle breeze. I've always known you're there, your presence near, and your prayers felt. Thank you for your Tuesday calls, and thank you for the wait. Thank you for loving my bride, and thus loving me all the more. Most of all, you have always loved me, Mom. I have never doubted your love. I have never needed to prove it. I've never wanted to rebel against it. Your love has been unconditional. I have learned to affirm because you have always affirmed and encouraged me. I can love because Christ first loved me. And he's done so much of it through you, Mom. Your prayers and love follow me wherever I go. Always remember, I love you as high as the sky and higher. Your son. Well, that's to you, Mom, as you are listening right now. Well, that was for my mom. That is for you moms out there as well this morning who can identify with any one or all of those seasons of life. I just want to say to you, young moms this morning, your labor is not in vain. Your labor is not in vain. Thank you, moms, those who have not spared the rod nor have a spared affection for your children. For God disciplines those he loves. Do not grow weary. Thank you for moms. I know there are many moms here who have labored with little, but have given much. We're aware at this church, there are many right now under great financial strain. And we know moms, you bear that as much, not more than any of us. Thank you for your abiding faith in God's provision. And thank you in doing so manifesting God's glory. Oh, I saw it as a child, having little but seeing God provide through my mom, through the church. Thank you to the moms who are older, who've already said goodbye to your children. Thank you for those who pray for their children, who bring them before the throne of grace daily, expectantly, eagerly. Thank you for your cries of salvation for those who have not yet met their Savior even your own children. Thank you for entrusting them to your Lord and Savior. Happy Mother's Day. You are to be honored. And with that in mind, let us open up our text this morning to the Ten Commandments and hear what the Lord's Word has to speak to us through this topic of honoring and obedience. Exodus chapter 20. We're going to start from verse 1. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. I'll wait till you have a moment to get there. Great. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, 
or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is, in, that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder, and the flashes of lightning, and the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off, and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Thus speaks the word of God. Let us pray. Word of God, speak to us this morning, we pray. May your voice thunder and be heard. Oh Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your law. I ask that you would use it for your purposes this morning to magnify your name and to conform us more and more into your image, we ask. Amen. Well, This morning's theme and action point is simply this. Obey God's commandments as God's grace to you. For the last several years, I've sat down with my children and done a Mother's Day survey with my children. I asked them a lot of fun questions about mommy, like, what is mommy's favorite meal? What is mommy's real hair color? Won't give you the answer to that. What animal does mommy look like when she gets angry? We have a lot of fun, but we also ask some more serious and honoring questions as well. This year, I asked the question in conclusion to our survey, our informal survey of four children. Why is mommy the best mommy in the world? I did not coach them. I expected to hear things about toys and, yes, food and many other yummy things. One of our children said, she's the best because she has chat time with me. She communicates. She talks with me. Another child, speaking of his need for help, said, she tells me what to do. Fascinating. And our youngest child said, to my surprise, because she spanks me. How well they did not know their uncoached responses frame this morning's message. You see, you mommies, when you sit down and talk with your children, when you tell them what is required of them, when you encourage them, and when you discipline them, that is God's kindness. It is your kindness, and it is fitting to the Lord. But when God does that to us, it is God's grace. It is God's grace. When God speaks to us and reveals himself and his will, when he tells us how we should live as his creation, it is a gift from him. Indeed, it is grace. We're going to look at grace this morning. It's called the Ten Commandments. It is these ten laws which form the basis of the laws and the case laws yet to come in Exodus and in the Pentateuch. It is these laws which show us 
what God is like. It are these laws that show us how God's people are to live. And it's these laws which, when kept, bring blessing to his children. See, to understand the Ten Commandments, thus the law of God, we must first understand the grace. Yes, the grace which leads us there. To understand the obligations of God, we must first understand the gift of God. Say that again. To understand the obligations of God, we must first understand the gift of God. So we're going to start with your action point here. Obey God's commandments as God's grace to you. We're going to start with the grace part this morning. I want you to hear that. You need to hear that. That's where Scripture starts this morning, verses 1 and 2. But the question is, how do you think the the law of God. When you think of the Ten Commandments, what do you think of? Probably most of us would not think of the word grace, at least not immediately. Perhaps for you it's been a burdensome to-do list. Perhaps for you it's like, man, that's, that's Old Covenant, man. That's, that's Old Testament. That's just so Old Testament. That's so Old Testament. That's just so Old School. We're New Testament believers, Corey. Oh, my friends, the Ten Commandments are God's grace to you. And they speak to us today. It is God's grace to us. I want to share my burden a little front this morning. As I was praying for this message, getting God's heart, I want you to read my prayer, which is found in Psalm 1. You didn't have to turn, you may. But this is what I'm trusting the Lord to do this morning. That we would see God's commandments, that we'd see God's law as his grace to us This morning, not a performance, not a duty, not a burdensome to-do list, but as God's kindness, God's revelation to us. Psalm 1 has a great description of the people of God, of the man of God, the woman of God, who trust in him. Listen to this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. What a picture of fruitfulness. This time of year, why are some lawns brown, and landscape withered? Why are others green and nurtured? In these days, the hot April and May sun, it's because of one thing, it is water. It is a living water. We get a picture here in Psalm 1 of a man, of a woman, who is meditating on that living water, by that living stream. It is called the law of God. That word law could be instruction of God, or the direction of God. And what is God's word producing us? By God's grace, fruitfulness. That is my prayer this morning. Have you ever wondered why those who are Christians, some in times of trial, seem to draw closer to God, while others, when tempted in trial, seem to be stagnant, or even go backwards in bitterness? I believe the answer can be found right here in the text. I think it comes down to the word of God, his grace to us. Oh, my friends, we need God's law. We need God's commandment as God's grace to you, as God's grace to me. With that in mind, we're going to start slow and build up this morning. Let's look at verses 1 and verses 2. If we miss this, we miss, we miss the entire context of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 21, 20, verse 1 says, And God spoke. All these words saying, God's grace starts with a spoken word. To put this in the right context, the people of God have now been delivered from the Egyptians. It is now the third month of wandering in the desert. The people are tired. They're grumbling. The honeymoon is over. The honeymoon that we talked about last week. Remember the song of Moses and Miriam? Those days are long gone, my friends, by now. They've been circling in the desert. They are cranky. They are grumbly. We'll talk about that next week, all right, or the week after, our new member Sunday. 
What the people thought they needed was this. Well, God, we need bread. We need water. That they did. But what God gave them was so much more in that desert place. He gave them his word to protect them, to sustain them, and to glorify him as his people. But they said, but Lord, give me leeks, give me onions, give me meat. Lord, give me a home. I'm tired of living in this tent. Lord, relate to this, give me a direction. I feel like I'm wandering about in circles. Lord, give me a prophetic word about the future. But God in his grace speaks into the world of sin and unbelief, and he gives them his law, and he gives them his presence. We're going to talk about his presence in the weeks to come, but here we have the introduction to his law, his living word, as his graceful provision for his people. What do you think you need this morning? Finances? Yeah, most of you here probably finances. Maybe some of you? I need a spouse. I'm inspired. Got three weddings coming up. You're thinking, yeah, Lord, I want to be in that line, okay? Some of you, maybe a job. For others, it may be healing. Those are all good things. Those are worthy requests. But most of all, we need to hear God's word. We need God's revelation. Why? If not, you will slowly but surely begin to conform God into your image. And you'll Lower God's word and standards to something that you feel you can do in your pride and in your arrogance. We need God's revelation to us. We need to be reminded afresh of who God is and how we are to live and how we were made to function as God's creation. I love one commentator's words here. He quotes, he says, quote, Grace starts when God speaks into our sin and then tells us the kind of God he is. God is making it known right here in this text at Mount Sinai as he confirms his covenant with his people. Exodus 22a says, not that I've spoken, this is what he speaks. I am the Lord your God. See that word Lord, all caps? Do you recognize that? It's the word Yahweh. He is saying, going back to his personal name as revealed to Moses, Earlier on in Exodus, he is saying, I am the Lord. I am who I am. I am the Lord who is with you. I am the covenant-keeping God. I am the God who is faithful to keep his promises. And I am holy. Not only does he speak it, he demonstrates his holiness at Mount Sinai. Guys, we put the picture up here. I'd like to give you a picture of what that may have looked like. We have it up there. Got this picture from Kevin Aubag this week. This is actually a volcanic eruption that took place in Chile, I believe, recently. I was in awe when I saw this photo. My friends, this is just a picture of what it would have been like on that day at Mount Sinai. God is saying, I am the Lord your God. What do you think he's communicating here through this picture? that we receive. It's not the Ten Suggestions, is it? No. The Ten Commandments. I am holy. I am God. I am to be feared. There's something more that God is communicating at Mount Sinai here to his people. Yes, they would fear him, absolutely. What did they saw when they saw the flashes of lightning, the pillars of fire at night? They would have been reminded of God's leadership of them in the desert out of Egypt, a pillar by night and by day, a cloud of smoke. In fact, the word used there in the text for lightning is flashing, like a flaming torch. They would have been well aware of that terminology. For the flaming torch is how God revealed himself in his covenant to Abraham back in Genesis 15. He is the covenant-keeping God. Add the smoke, add the lightning, add the fire. What else do we get? A trumpet. A trumpet from heaven. Only two times in the scripture do we get a trumpet from heaven. One is right here, Mount Sinai. The other is when God returns. God is saying, I am the God to be feared. I am the covenant-keeping God who has brought you out of Egypt. It is by my hand and it is by my grace. Therefore, consecrate yourself. 
for this is holy ground. And that they did as they received God's law and God's word. In doing so, they were reminded afresh of God's character. Thirdly, and in doing so, they were reminded of their deliverance from Egypt. He says it outright in Exodus 2, 2b. Second part of that verse. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Please hear this this morning. The basis of the Ten Commandments, the basis of the law of God is his word, his character, and his gracious act of deliverance. You see, grace that saves precedes the law that demands. One more time. Grace that saves precedes the law that demands. To quote from one commentator, the people were given the law, not in order that they might become the redeemed. Rather, it was because they already had been redeemed that they were given the law. Oh, my friend, this changes everything, does it not? Law then becomes a function of grace. Law, God's word to us, now proceeds from grace. It is not what we deserve, but it is God's kindness to us, that he would reveal himself and his will and his character to us, that we may conform to his word and law, that we may become holy as he is holy. See, God's word, God's law, God's command leads to more grace. It's birthed in grace, and it leads to grace. We must see that as we study the Ten Commandments. The law is a gift, but the law also is an obligation. It's a gift, but there's an obligation entailed as well. It's called obedience. That takes us to our next point. We are called to obey God's command. In just the prior chapter, Exodus 19, we get our theme verse for Exodus where it says, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment, obey my voice, he's speaking, obey my commandments, Mount Sinai, you shall be my treasured possession among all people. Oh, in one sense, they truly were God's people, for he had already delivered them. But if you want to experience God's blessing as a treasured possession of mine, I'm calling you to obey. I am calling you to be holy we must obey God's command, not because it earns God's favor, because it results from God's favor and grace. If we address the first misconception about the law, that is the opposite of grace, let us now address the second common misconception, that the law does not address the heart. Oh, church, we are to obey God's command with all our hearts. This is not just a legalistic outward expression. It is a heart-filled response of worship to our Savior. See, God is a jealous God. He wants hearts. He wants our hearts. He wants to protect and preserve our hearts for him, for his worship alone. You see, God's commands have always been about the heart. In fact, that is how Christ interpreted all the law. We read in Matthew 22, verse 37 and following, don't need to turn there, And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Here in the Ten Commandments, God starts the heart and he ends with the heart. Verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Verse 17, the 10th commandment, you shall not covet anything. Why is it so important? Because our heart informs our thoughts, and our thoughts inform our words and our actions. That's the progression that we see in the 10 commandments. We're not going to go through them in detail. I've left a schematic for you. If it serves you, wonderful. If it confuses you, just ignore it. But I love these kind of things. I was just straining myself from putting in more there. But I want you to see, in brackets, is the commandment and the flow of God's word and wisdom to us. Thoughts, commandments one and two, lead to words, commandment three, leading to deeds, commandment four, 
leading to really the bridge of the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother. Then we go back to loving your neighbor, deeds, words, and thoughts. What does this all mean? It means that the law is a heart issue spelled out in thoughts and words and deeds. It all starts with the heart, and it all starts with God. If you get the vertical relationship right with God, we're going to get the horizontal relationship with one another right. We get the vertical wrong, we're going to get the horizontal relationships wrong, aren't we? They're part and parcel. Obedience to the first must be reflected in the obedience to the second. If you're going to love your neighbor as yourself, we must first love God. So what we want to do in today's society, even in our culture, even in our schools, we want the morals, we want the value clarification, we want the love your neighbor, we're all for that. But don't talk about loving your God. You can't love your neighbor, truly, if you don't love God. They go together. And that's what the Ten Commandments show us, both in heart, heart, thought, word, and deed. So this morning, let me ask, do you have a problem with lust? In Matthew 5, we read Christ's words that lust is adultery of the heart. You see, if you have a lust problem, you have a God problem. You have a God problem. Do you have a problem with anger or hatred? First John, we read that hatred is considered murder. If you have a hatred problem or an anger problem, my friends, you have a God problem. Your anger isn't just against your neighbor. Your anger ultimately is directed against God who gave you that neighbor. <laughs> All right. Do you have a problem telling lies, bearing false testimony, even petty lies? If so, you don't just have a lying problem, my friends. You have a God problem. For God does not lie. And we are called to image him. Do you have a problem coveting others' possessions? Your neighbor's house, car, job, spouse, children. If so, you don't just have a coveting problem. You have a God problem. You have idolatry. And that's where we must go to understand God's word. Friends, our hearts truly are idol factories. We are made to worship. The question is, are you worshiping God? We must start there for all the other commandments flow from there. You see, the question in the first commandment is so appropriate for us today. Who is your God? I mean, who is your functional God? These commandments weren't given to the Egyptians, to Malachites, the South Beachites. They were given to who? God's people. Now, God's word is appropriate for them. It is needful for them. In fact, it judges them. Okay. But God's commandments are given to you because we have a worship problem, okay? We, even as believers, our hearts go astray. That's why it says in 1 John, little children, keep yourself from idols. He's just not talking about carved images or totem poles. He's speaking of the cravings of the hearts, that which rules your hearts other than God. I'm thankful for the Apostle Paul and his word to the Colossian church. He lit some of these idols for us. Colossians 3, 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is, what? Idolatry. It all starts there. But don't fail to catch God's mercy. It also says in his word, second commandment, that he may be punish you, and he will, even to the third or fourth generation. Oh, I thank God. Here's our hope this morning. His discipline is restrained. But there are ramifications for our idolatry in word, thought, and deed, not only to us, but to our children as well. But while his discipline is restrained, his love is lavish. He says, I will show steadfast love to thousands, that may mean even thousands, generations of those who love me and keep my 
commandments. Do you receive the blessing here? That is for us today as well. Do you want to be fruitful? Do you want to be the tree that's planted by the stream of living water? Oh, I do. Well, right here, we have an obligation to respond to God. It's called obedience. And from there flows blessing upon blessing. Let's look at the third command, which flows from the first two. Verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Whereas the second commandment prohibits visual representations of God, the third focuses on our verbal representation of God. How are you verbally representing God or Christ? How do those words in his name, his personal name, rest upon your lips? I believe we can violate and sin with this commandment in a variety of ways. We can use God's name to manipulate, even in prophecy. The Lord told me. I do believe in prophetic word, all right? But how easy we can use God's name to direct and to get what we want. We can use it thoughtlessly. Oh my, fill in the blank. Not even thinking twice but the name of God, our creator, and our savior. We can use it as an expletive. We can use it to make false promises. I swear to God that. You see, to take God's name in vain is to use it in a way that is hollow and empty. It does not conform to who God is, his character, his mighty majesty. It is to lack a fear of God. You know what? I think if we're light in this area, we're careless in this area, we're going to be careless with our words too. If we're careless with the name of God, I think we'll also be careless with our words towards one another. Yes, even lying. Yes, even white lies. We become used to having words rest lightly on our lips. That should not be. The third commandment speaks to that as well. For God's name is holy. It doesn't mean that we don't speak his name, like Orthodox Jews. We'll say the name Yahweh we do it, it's in a way that exalts and worships our Savior. It is a sacred name, and it's a matter of the heart, is it not? How about the fourth command? There's some confusion here. I'm not going to go to it fully, but I do want to address it. It's regarding the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, or your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. Why? Here's the reason. Verse 11. For, because in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, catch this, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day. There's that blessing again. And made it holy. He made it sacred. He made it special. Well, how do we represent God? Not only verbally, but in the ordering of our week. Are we representing God? If he is our true God, that would be reflected in how we live, the choices we make each day, not only to work, but also even to rest. There's no reason to have a seven-day week. There's a reason, astronomically, to have a year, right? A revolution on the sun, Or a month, a lunar revolution, right? But for a week, no, it's God who established the week. Six days you'll work, and on the seventh shall rest. Why? Because we were made, as God's creation, to image him. We were made to reflect him. Because God knows what we need. He created us. He knows how we are to function. He knows that we need rest I'm not going to go into all the things that you can and cannot do on a Sabbath day. But I believe it should be centered around rest, according to God's word here. It should be centered around God and worship and fellowship. I think that day is Sunday. It should be a holy day set apart. For us as pastors, there are situations where really our Sabbaths become a Monday because of the duties that we have, even though they are delight that we have on Sunday. But we too need a day of rest. We need a day to step back 
and to focus on God. For he is the reason that we have a Sabbath. Yes, he made it for man, but for man that therefore could delight in him. To stop and smell the roses, so to speak. To look out at the creator and his creation and say, this is good. This is all of your hand. Everything I see, every breath that I take, Lord, comes from you. We need to stop. We need to rest. We need to reflect. We need to let God, his word, even what we have around us and provided for us, direct us back to him in worship. Everything is called to do this. It is a memorial day as well. We're not only recognizing what God has done, not only in creation, but we have another account of the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, also in Deuteronomy 5 as well, where they give a different reason. He gives a different reason for remembering the Sabbath. Not just because God created the earth in six days and rested on the seventh, we read as well, because you were once slaves in Egypt. In other words, I want you to take this day to remember me and what I've done, not only in my creation, but also in salvation. For I have delivered you from slavery. I have delivered you from the bondage of sin. You catch that? But it goes even further than that. We learn in the New Testament that the Sabbath is ultimately found and fulfilled in who? In Christ. He is our ultimate rest in Hebrews. So when we're resting, we are not only looking back and looking upward at God and what he's accomplished through his creation and salvation, we are looking forward to the day when he returns and we enter into our final rest. You get a picture? That is Sabbath. That is what God wants. And this is what he blesses, a day of rest. But I realize it's also a challenge, is it not, to take a day on Sunday to rest. We are busy people with busy lives. There are many factors why that can be so difficult, can it? For some, it makes it be downright greed. You don't want to stop working on a Sunday. Why? There's more money to be made. We live in a 24-7 economy, don't we? Working around the clock, always another buck to be had. My friends, that is greed. It goes back to the first commandment and the second commandment. You must ask, where's your affection? What is your idol? Because your focus and affection is God, then you will take a Sabbath. If not, you will work. But some of you may say, okay, Corey, I, I don't think it's greed. I just want to provide for my family. It is hard times. I need to do a little extra. I need to use this day to get work done. I understand the tension. I know Al and I feel it. I feel it regularly. But let me suggest to you what I've seen in my own heart. When I think that way, it's ultimately a matter of unbelief. God, could you provide for me if I truly take a day of rest? All my concerns, all the to-dos that are in my head right now, if I put them before you, if I take time for rest and the leisure for worship, would you not meet those needs the other six days of the week? I believe he wants to. God did not give this command in ignorance. He knew what he was asking. He knew it in the desert. He says, listen, I'm going to give you two portions on on Friday, the day before Sabbath, of manna. So you will not have to work on Sunday. I want you to farm for six years. In the seventh year, I want the ground to lay fallow. What? No crops for a year? Yes, and to see my glorious provision for you. For some of you, it may be a matter of faith not to work. It is for me. It doesn't take much faith to work on my Sabbath day. I'm a worker. I could be a busy bee. It takes faith to say, no, I will not. I will honor God, and thus I will want to re- receive his blessing for me as well as my family. See, the fact is, you or I, we're not indispensable. We think we are. We think God needs us seven days a week, that we need to be on, 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 going, going, going. No, we don't. The word says so, for God has blessed his day. And then we come lastly to the bridge commandment, the fifth commandment mentioned earlier at the beginning. We've come full circle. Verse 12, honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. This commandment, this relationship is one that is true for all of us. In fact, this relationship that he mentions first is our introduction to authority. It is our training ground 
for obedience to God. And it starts in the home as a child. To honor means to obey. Youth, for those who are in the home of your mother and father still, to honor means to obey. It is a testing ground. It is from this relationship where other relationships are formed. It's also the most difficult relationship, is it not? Why? Because those that you know best know best how to provoke you, don't they? It is tough to be in a home because you see each other's sins so much more clearly, don't you? But the word says, honor your mother and a father. Obey your mother and your father. To honor also means to prize highly, to exalt. In fact, this word is often used and directed towards God, to honor God. You see, your parents are God's representative to you here on earth. And you may say, wait, wait, Corinth. You don't know my parents. They're not believers. You don't know my mom. You don't know what I've been through, Corey. Listen, the word of God does not say, if your parents are believers, then honor them. They do not say, if your parents have not been divorced, then honor them. They do not say, if your parents are worthy, honor them. They say, honor your parents. It is not a conditional phrase. You may say, how can I honor them for the things they have done? I don't even know my mother and father. You know this much, they gave birth to you. If nothing else, you can honor them for that. For some of you, it may be entail pick up a, your phone today and calling your mother. Maybe you haven't even talked to her for a while. God's saying, I want you to honor her. I will give you the words to honor your mother. And he will. What a good exercise it is to honor. You see, to honor goes against our very grain, our very nature. I know Al has mentioned this quote several times. We've been talking about it lately. It comes from St. Clara Ferguson. It is so much more easy to see sin. That is natural. But to see grace in others is supernatural. It is of God. Would God give you the grace to honor your mother today, to honor your father when that day comes in June? Perhaps to write a tribute to your mother and father. It doesn't have to be like I did, but a way of expressing your affection that you prize them for who they are. My friends, this is the only, right here, commandment in these ten with a direct promise. What is it? What is it? If you honor your mother and father, you will live long in the days of the Lord. You'll live long in the land the Lord has given you. I don't know what all that means, <laughs> but I hear life. I hear longevity. I hear legacy. That's what I hear. I want to live long. I want to have a legacy of honoring that's passed down to my children and them to their children. That's what I desire, and that's what is promised in God's word for those who honor their mother and their father. Well, as we draw to a close, we are to honor. We are to obey with all our hearts and with a new heart. I want to read Jeremiah 31, starting with verse 31. This is important for us as New Testament, as New Covenant believers to hear and to understand. Jeremiah prophesying to the day in which we live. He said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, where I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But catch verse 33. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. My friends, that day has come. That day has arrived. It is in Christ Jesus. He has taken his righteousness and imputed it to us. He has stamped righteousness on our hearts that we can obey. He has written the words and commandments of Mount Sinai on our hearts as believers that we can obey. Oh, there's hope there this morning. If you read these commandments carefully, you should feel a degree of conviction. I hope you do. But what I want you to hear most of all, there is hope as those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Christ came not to abolish the law, my friends, but he came to fulfill the requirements of the law on our behalf. And we now stand in his righteousness. That law that's not written on our hearts, I believe that refers to regeneration. We have regeneration. We have his character stamped on our hearts with a desire to obey. Oh, that is good news. It says in your notes, we have received the new nature, which has been fashioned for obedience. In Christ, we want to obey, and we can obey. And in doing so, we testify to Christ's righteousness in us. Oh, we can obey. It is God's grace from beginning to end. If you're not obeying this morning, perhaps you haven't had a change of heart. Perhaps you haven't received this grace that I'm talking about. I'd like to put a quote up there from Martin Lloyd-Jones. If you could, there, Joey, that'd be great. I want to read it carefully. It's a long quote, but I hope it will serve you in conclusion. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, There is nothing more fatal than to regard holiness and sanctification as experiences to be received. I.e., guys, we're not going to be zapped with obedience, okay? There's work to be done. Next line. No, holiness means being righteous, and being righteous means keeping the law. Therefore, if your so-called grace, which you have say you have received, does not make you keep the law, you have not received grace. You may have received a psychological experience, but you have never received the grace of God. What is grace? Ah, it is that marvelous gift of God, which, having delivered a man from the curse of the law, enables him to keep it and to be righteous as Christ was righteous, for he kept the law perfectly. If you are not in Christ, if you've not received this grace, let his commandments this morning drive you to him. Let the law be your tutor to reveal your sin and your need for God's forgiveness and grace. Don't wish these commandments away. We can take them out of the public eye. We can take them from the courthouses. But God's word says, Christ said of God's words, they will not abolish. They will not go away. Until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until it's all accomplished. Oh, my friends, but if you are in Christ this morning, if you've experienced his grace, let us delight, let us enjoy God's freedom, God's grace to you, found in the law and word of God. Amen? Amen.